All right, the last time we spoke, uh, the last thing that we dealt with about God in the outline here was his self-existence. His self-existence. He always was and always will be. And of course, which leads into a couple of other um, a couple of other aspects that we're going to look at tonight. Uh, and really, you can't have one without understanding the other. And we kind of alluded a little bit last week in in the self-existence of God, uh, and spoke about His eternality a little bit in that um, He just always was, and uh, uh, so. He never was made by anybody. <laughs> he didn't even make himself. And which kind of, so like I said, the self-existence of God and understanding that God exists, period, leads us into the next, the next point, which is the eternity of God. And again, we've spoke a little bit to it, but we'll look at it here. And then the next one we'll look at probably tonight, just two of them. I imagine we'll get through the next two, is the immutability of God, which means the unchangeableness. He doesn't change. And, uh, and so you see all three of these tied together, hopefully, uh, as we get through this lesson. All right, the eternity of God. The attribute of self-existence suggests that of eternity. Or it may be said that the two attributes are suggestive of each other. For if the causes of God exist... Uh, if the causes of God's existence are in, are in himself, reason will admit that those causes have been in operation from eternity. And if he is, if he is an eternal being, then he must be self-existent. <laughs> there is no past, present, or future with God so far as his knowledge is concerned, but an eternal now. And uh, there's some uh, really good statements uh, from other men uh, that uh, Mr. Bancroft quotes from that we're going to get to uh, in one of these two um, subjects tonight. God had no beginning and will have no end. He knows, he knows events as taking place in time, but he is not limited by time in any way. He recognizes some events as past and others as future in relation to present events, but past, present, and future are equally known to him. <laughs> We tell of events, we tell of events one by one as they occur. God sees all events in a connected whole as they were one. He already knows. Which brings us to uh, an argument uh, which I was thinking about as I was kind of going through this. I'm thinking, but the Bible says over here, maybe because I've went through this before, I couldn't, you know, I actually went through it twice before. Um, Once in our little institute, once when I was trying to, teach this in, in uh, Mississippi, but uh, we're going to get to there because there is some, but what about that you may be confronted with and you know how do you explain it? That, that, that's here in, in, the, in a minute under the immutability of God. But, uh, but he, ne- he, he, he just sees it. He knows the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end, and so he understands it all and knows how it's all going to play out before it even gets here. We're limited in, in our thinking. We're limited in our understanding. We have to under, you know, we can plan for the future, but we don't know what the future holds. You know, I plan on getting up in the morning, <laughs> but I could die in a car wreck tonight. You know, I don't know. Um, so, uh, 
anyway, but God knows 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 all. So the 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 meaning of eternal or eternity, eternity is in infinite duration. For example, uh, for example, duration without beginning or end. So there's a Latin phrase here. Uh, see if I can remember my high school Latin. <laughs> it took two years. Uh, punctum stans expresses it an ever abiding present. Um, eternity is limited limited in our thinking by time and space. He that inhabited eternity is beyond our finite comprehension. In reality, God's thoughts and purposes and acts are inseparable and without cessation. Wordsworth says, our noisy years seem moments in the being of eternal silence. The word eternal is sometimes used in three senses. Okay, so sometimes, so these are the way that we use the word eternal. So we may say figuratively, uh, as eternal mountains, eternal hills. So if you're, you know, you're out in certain parts of the the country and you just see mountain, mountain range and it seems to go on for... Eternity, but you know that they don't. But that's so we would, you know, in our writing maybe describe what we're looking at. You know, this this mountain that seems to go on for eternity, which is figuratively, because we know that they don't. Second one, limited meaning, uh, limited meaning. So the figurative meaning, and then the second limited meaning, which is denoting an existence having a beginning, but will have no end. Such as the angels, they had a beginning. But they have no end, and our souls had a beginning, but they have no end. So John three fifteen, when it uses the word eternal, there, he that believeth on him uh, shall have eternal life. Let me read it. It's the same thing, but, but John or the the Bible translators, I guess, the King James Bible translators, translated the word eternal. In John three fifteen, but translated everlasting in John three sixteen, but so so with that limited meaning having a beginning, but no end. So like our souls, and uh, so again, so that whosoever as read fourteen, and as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And everlasting and eternal is the same meaning there. Having a beginning but not having an end. So it's a limited meaning when we use eternal in that sense. But the literal meaning of eternal denotes an existence which has neither beginning or end like that of God. Time has past, present, and future. God has not. (laughs) He doesn't have any of that. He is eternal. He's just always self-existing. No time. No time limits. Always was. And um, so I like this one here. This Arvine had quoted a deaf and dumb uh, inmate in an institute in Paris. One of the deaf and dumb inmates in an institute in Paris being asked to express his idea of eternity of the deity, he wrote. <laughs> I'm, I think about cross-stitching this on a little, I'm framing it. Yes, I cross-stitch. It is duration 
without beginning or end, existence without bounds or dimension, present without past or future. His eternity is youth without infancy or old age, life without birth or death, today without yesterday or tomorrow. I like that right there, boys. That's God. (laughs) Ever-present, always being, now and ever and ever. The God of the Bible is the only being who who is absolutely eternal, his existence having neither beginning nor end. In this sense, eternity is an attribute Um, peculiarly his own. And on the throne, which is forever and ever, he must ever sit in majestic isolation. There is no being like Jehovah. So the fact of it, now we're going to get into Scripture. Genesis 21. All right, Genesis 21. I am going to get a drink of water. I appreciate the water tonight. I don't know, it's thirsty for some reason. I'm trying to think of it. Went back to what I had for supper, but I'm not sure. Genesis 21, verse number 32. Thus they made a covenant at Beersheba. Then Abimelech rose up and Phichal, the chief captain of his host, and they returned into the land into the land of the Philistines. And Abraham planted a grove in Beersheba and called thereon the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. And Abraham sojourned in the Philistines' land many days. So Abraham called him the everlasting God, which denotes the fact, all right? So let's go to Exodus chapter 3. We'll take a few of these. There's a whole bunch of them on the sea furthers and the sea alsos. Get my pages turned right here. Come on now. Exodus 3, verse number 14. Of course, we've went over some of these when we were talking about the names of God. Verse number 13, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come unto the children of Israel, and shall say unto them, The God of your fathers hath sent me unto you, and they shall say to me, What is his name? What shall I say unto them? And God said unto Moses, I am that I am. And he said, Thus thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, I am hath sent me. And if you'll remember when we talked about the names of God, that I am is just a self-existing one. All right? So he he's just is. And um, so there's that one. Let's go to Deuteronomy. We're just about two, maybe three more. Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy 33. Verse number 27, the eternal God is thy refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. 
And he shall thrust out the enemy from before thee and shall say, destroy them. So it uses the word eternal and everlasting. Eternal God is thy refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms. And that'll preach. All right, so then Psalm 90. We'll look at three three more. 90, two, two in Psalm and one in Hebrews here. Psalm 90, verse number 2. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, <laughs> thou art God. Psalm 102. Verses 24 through 27. I said, O my God, take me, take me not away in the midst of my days. Thy years are throughout all generations. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same and thy years shall have no end. The children of thy servants shall continue, and their seed shall be established before thee. Now let's go to the New Testament, Hebrews. Chapter 1. Hebrews 1, verse 12. Uh, let's back up. Let's go to verse 10. And thou, Lord, in the beginning hast laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. They, they shall perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as doth the garment, and as a vesture shall thou fold them up, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall not fail. Let's grab one more. Revelation here in the New Testament. Revelation chapter 1. Verse number 8. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, and the ending, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. I'm glad we went and got that one. All right, so there is some scriptures that gives us the facts based on the scriptures. The doctrinal statement on the eternal God, the eternal, the eternal, the eternality of God. Here's the doctor's statement. The Bible asserts the fact that God is eternal. His existence had no beginning and will have no ending. He always was, always is, and always will be. Now the immutability of God. So the self-existence and eternity of God may be considered arguments for his immutability. In other words, he doesn't change. As an infinite being, absolutely independent of uh, independent and eternal, God is above the possibility of change. Creatures change everything; earthly changes, but God changes not. 
He is and must be eternally the same, for he is infinitely perfect, and infinite perfection prevents and and precludes change. There can be no change which does not imply imperfection. Okay, so this applies both, basically, to his natural attributes and his moral attributes, this thinking here. So I'm trying to cut down here, but let's just... So it is needless to say that imperfection is implied in change for the worse for much... Okay. It is needless to say that imperfection is implied in a change for the worse. There we go. For such change would indicate imperfection before. Okay. If, if he took a change for the worse, then there was imperfection before. Uh, and greater... Um, Let's see, and greater imperfection after is a, uh, after its occurrence. So, either way, it also is true that change for the better denotes a previous imperfection, for such a change toward perfection. Now, God, whether we consider him as possessing natural or moral attributes, is absolutely perfect. There can be no addition to the number of his natural attributes, and there can be no increase of their capacity and power. It would be absurd to suppose that God can be more self-existent, more eternal, or more omnipotent than he is. It is equally absurd to suppose that his natural attributes can be alienated from him or that he can lose them in any way. And it's also the same, the same kind of thinking talks about his moral attributes, his goodness. It doesn't change. And, of course, we get down to the fact of it in Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. And it's, For I am the Lord, I change not, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. And then they're going to get into the, to the objections to the doctrine, and we'll get that in a minute because we say, wait a minute, and I'll, you'll get there and you'll understand where I'm going to, but I'm going to get right here. The meaning of immutability. By immutability is as used in relation to God, we mean that God in his nature, uh, attributes and counsels are unchanging. For these, as belonging to an infinite being, are absolutely perfect and therefore admit no uh, therefore, admit of no possible variation. Immutability does not imply inactivity or immobility, for God is infinite in power and energy. Nor does it imply lack of feeling, for God is capable of infinite sympathy and suffering and of great indignation against iniquity. It does not imply that God is incapable of making free choices, for God, for to God belongs the in, uh, inalienable right in an alienable right to choose ends and me, and the means of attaining them nor does it prohibit god from progressively unfolding and carrying out his plans and purposes all right we might sum it up the meaning of god's immutability by saying his moral personal self-consistency in all his dealings with his creatures um the tune of the simple song eh, Let's just do it directly. We're doing the fact. Now, here's the argument against the, his immutability. They say, wait a minute. Or here's, wait, this is the doctrinal statement first. Doctrinal statement, the scriptures clearly teach that God is immutable and he remains forever the same and unchangeable. There's some other scriptures we could go to. I want to get to this part. And that is the, um, the objection. Because you say, God repented himself a couple of times in the word of God. You know, he changed. No. He says he changed not because, it, you know, just like that scripture says in Malachi, if 
if uh, it says, I am the Lord, I change not. And because of that, that therefore there, therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. If I'd have changed, then I'd have just, you know, and even before the son, yeah, before, well, I said sons of Jacob, it's the same thing. The children of Israel, when they're coming in, uh, you know, it's like, look, I'll just destroy them all, Moses, and I'll raise up a seed to you. Moses said, wait a minute. Now, does that, you know, and again, there's where some people want to argue that God could change because he changed his mind. And there's some two passages of Scripture. There's actually two of them here, Objection 1 and Objection 2, to his immutability. But um, so Jonah, Objection number 1, Jonah 3.10. And God saw their works, talking about Nineveh, that they turned from their evil way, and God repented of the evil that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. This passage states that God repented. How is it to be reconciled with his immutability? Okay. So the answer to that is the word repent here means a change of mind or a changed mind. When, it applied, when applied to God, the word is used phenomenally or apparently according to Old Testament custom. God seems to change his mind because he changes his method. The phenomena are such as, in the case of a man, would indicate a change of mind. It is part of the difficulty with which deity must deal with in attempting to explain himself to finite minds. So he writes, and he's allowed the writer lots of times to put that in there to help us understand. But see, that's going back to his, his self-existence and his, um, his eternality. He already knows. So he knew that before he allowed the writer of Jonah to pen, he, changed, he repented. He already knew that Nineveh was going to repent. He already knew that Nineveh was going to go so many more years. And he already knew that Nineveh was going to be destroyed eventually. You know, so, in, in, you know, he, all, he knows all of it, and he's got it all tied together. He knows it all. He knows, he knows that I'm going to inter, who I'm going to interact with tomorrow. And in, and in my interaction with them, positive or negative, how, how my interaction with them, how, how not only positive or negative, but how, how much of an impact that my crossing their path is going to affect them somewhere along the way. He already knows it. You know, this is your life. <laughs> There's a lot of things about that movie that I don't like. But it does kind of make you think. And, and how much of our life does affect people. So, but see, he already knows, and so in, in you know, you know the whole. Anybody's ever seen it? And uh, one of my son-in-laws, I forget who it was, never had seen it before. Sat down and watched it. He was like, "I don't get, I don't get why people watch this thing every year." Anyway, but uh, but see, so he he knows how my life is going to affect whoever I come in contact with tomorrow. And if it's a positive, or if it's a great impact on their life, and they wind up coming to church and they hear the gospel. See, he already knows all that. 
And we just think it's happenstance. But he's got it all tied together from all the way from back to Adam or all the way back when he says, and God said. All the way to the end when he says, time shall be no more. And eternity starts for us. It's always been for him. He's got it all turned. You see, so again, he sees it all and it's all put together with him. And so to, to, to help us understand the, uh, the reason that he didn't destroy Nineveh, then he allowed the writers to write the word repent. So a boat, so God remained the same in char- character, infinitely hating sin, and in his purpose to visit sin with judgment, but as Nineveh changed in its attitude towards sin, God necessarily changed in his attitude toward Nineveh. His character remains the same, but his dealings with men change as they change from a position that is hateful to his unchangeable hatred of sin, uh, hateful to his unchangeable hatred of sin, to one that is pleasing to his unchangeable love of righteousness. A boat rose against the stream, the current resists it. So is a nation violating the law of God. It is subject to a judgment. The boat turns and goes with the stream. The current assists it. So is a nation that which repented and put itself into harmony with God's law. It is subject, it is subject to a blessing. But the current is the same. It has not changed. Only the boat has changed in the relationship to the current. Neither does God change. We change and the same law which executed itself in punishment now expresses itself in blessing. That's pretty good. The second objection, another word that it uses, another time that it uses the word repent, was in, let's see, well, yeah, in Genesis 6, 6, and it repented the Lord that he made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. This passage says not only that God repented, but that he was grieved at heart. How is it to be explained in the light of his immutability, his unchangeableness, okay, his immutability? Answer one, man's wickedness was so great and so abhorrent that his very creation was an object of great grief to God. This does not necessarily imply that God wished all things considered that he had not created man, but only, just as it said, that it, he grieved that he had many things that we do are a grief to us, and yet everything considered, everything considered, we do not wish that we had not done them. Answer two, by God's repenting that he had made man is meant, as the context clearly shows, that he turned from his creative dealings with man to dealings in judgment and destruction. So he turned from the creative dealings as creator to the judge. But he's not changed. He's going to remain the same. We're going to get out early tonight because the next one is the omniscience, omnipresence. Omniscience is a long one. And then we're going to look at his moral attributes. So anyway, we'll get them, Lord willing. Well, yeah. Next time I, or we're here. All right. So, all right. Let's be dismissed in order of prayer, or well, and then, but don't just get up and go when I say Amen, because we'll.
we'll talk about what I... Now, let me just pray about it. What we're going to do as far as next Wednesday. All right, so I've still got a few days to pray and seek God on that. All right, so we'll pray and be dismissed. Heavenly Father, I thank